John Hirsch sat down with moderator Richard Harden for an interview in October of 1984. I'm Hope Clark, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Welcome to the Roundtable, SSDNC. Uh, obviously, the gentleman sitting here, a lot of you know or know of, Mr. John Hirsch. And we're very, very happy to have him with us today. Folks, by way of introduction, uh, for those of you who may not be uh, terribly familiar with Mr. Hirsch's life, uh, as I frankly was not, uh, certain exploits in his life, yes, but not the entire thing, uh, I'd like just for a second to do a very, very, very brief outline and synopsis for you. Um, Mr. Hirsch was born in Hungary, apparently came into Canada in 1947. According to his bio, directed his first play in 1951, which was the time of your life. Uh, directed his first film in 1955, a film called The Shadow of the City. In 1956, established the Manitoba Theatre Centre. 1964, directed Virginia Woolf at the Manitoba Theatre Centre. 1965, did his first show at Stratford, which was The Cherry Orchard. 1967, directed Galileo, starring Anthony Quayle at Lincoln Centre. 1967 as well, became the Associate Artistic Director at Stratford. I assume his first tenure at Stratford. 1968, did St. Joan at Lincoln Center. Also did We Bombed in New Haven in uh, New York on Broadway. 1969, resigned from Stratford for the first time. 1970, I noticed, uh, did a funny thing happen on the way to the Forum at the Manitoba Theater Center. Uh, not according to the bio of the first musical comedies, but I thought it kind of interesting that to have done that play uh, as well. Also at that t- in that year, did ACDC for the Chelsea Theater in Brooklyn. In 1971, was a consultant to the U.S. National Endowment of the Arts. Also did a show for the New York City Opera. Also did a show at the Guthrie. 1974, was head of TV drama for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Also managed in there to translate, adapt, and direct the Dybbuk in Toronto, and then later at the Mark Taper. Uh, delivered many lectures around the country, universities around the United States and Canada, and I assume the world was also media consultant for the National Endowment of the Arts. In 1975, consultant to the New American Drama Project in L.A., uh, produced for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, a show by the name of Portrait of a Mask. In 1976, was the executive producer of of a television drama called Sarah, about Sarah Bernhardt. Uh, And as you know, is currently artistic director of Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Ontario. Uh, the bio I had only went up to 1977, and I was already destroyed with trying to remember everything this man has done. Uh, it's sometimes beyond me. Uh, among the awards, just to give you another example, uh, again, I quote from the bio that I, I won the Outer Critics Circle Award in 68 for St. Joan at Lincoln Center. He won an Obie uh, in 1970 for ACDC at the Chelsea. The play received a total of four Obies. He was named Off-Broadway's Best Director of the Year. 1967, uh, he was given the Order of Canada, Medal of Service. Uh, 1975, Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle Award, a Distinguished Director for the Dybbuk. 
1976 Canadian Authors Association Literary Award for his translation and adaptation of the Divot. 1977, the Concert Society of the Jewish Peoples and, excuse me, Peretz Schools Award in Montreal for contribution to the arts in Canada. 1976, uh, he won the Prix Anik. Prix Anik. Show my ignorance. There you go again. But that's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's Award for Best Drama, Documentary, and Musical Program. Uh, 1976, won the Molson Prize, the Canadian that Prize for... That was the best. You got 20000 All the rest of the things that you put on the wall. But that came with money. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, you would, since it was the Molson Prize, I thought maybe it came with a case of Molson. Well, they actually gave money <laughs> At any rate, obviously, this uh, gentleman has a rather extraordinarily distinguished career, let alone being where he is at the moment. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, again, as I must admit that I wasn't totally familiar with Stratford. Uh, let me give you an idea of what they did last year, which kind of astounded me. Midsummer Night's Dream, Romeo and Juliet, Love's Labor, Tartuffe, Merchant of Venice, Iolanthe, Gondoliers, Mikado, Streetcar, Separate Tables, Godot, Two Gentlemen, Henry IV, Part One, All in One Season, going from June 10th to October, what, uh, October 27th? Not over yet. <laughs> uh, that is mind-boggling. That, that truly is mind-boggling to, to me, at least. Uh, I noticed that, that next season you're going to take it easy, doing My Fair Lady, along with, it seems to be, 431 different Shakespeare plays and uh, The Cherry Orchard again, uh, all of which leads me to, when I sat down, uh, when Jim Furlong asked me to, to do this, I sat down and read these things, and I thought, there are enough things here I would like to ask you personally uh, and to talk about and share ideas with to probably go for about four days. And I'll watch in half an hour, there won't be anybody that will have any questions, and we'll all have to go home. But uh, what I'd like to do is try to open up some various subjects, and then later we'll open up to questions from all of you, or I assume if you have a question as we're going, however we want to end up handling this. Uh, but I thought I'd try to open up some, as I say, some subjects and see where we go from there. <laughs> First, after reading the season and reading your life, is who owns, owns the Valium concession in Canada? We must <laughs> keep everybody busy with as much work as you do. The, uh, one of the things that, that uh, interests me among them is, uh, as, as I sat down today to try to write some of these things down, I thought it kind of peculiar that we'd be meeting in New Dramatists. Uh, which, of course, is, is uh, the Super Bowl in New York of new playwrights, uh, a total new playwright arena, as well it should be. And I, I, I wondered how that might affect you being so involved as you are with the classics, uh, possibly in terms of, to you, how would you define a classic? What I mean, I don't mean to be naive, but... What is it that makes a play a classic to you? Well, the, the traditional definition of a classic is a work of art which stood the test of time. Uh, that really means, as far as I'm concerned, a work of art which has something to say to uh, all ages. And uh, Shakespeare or Beethoven or Mozart or Rembrandt or uh, people of that, that caliber, I think, uh, have something to say to every age and something probably different to every age. 
yet at the same time maintaining their own value and their own core and their own, own center. I think great works of art are great, and they're classics basically because of their fundamental ambiguity. In short, that they're so rich and so complex that they're open to interpretation uh, to all ages and to many, many cultures which are not necessarily the culture from which they arose. In short, it seems that Shakespeare seemed to work for all human societies in which power and family and the relationship between the individual and family and the relationship between family and the, the larger unit, which is the nation or the tribe or what have you, and further, the relationship to some supernatural being or order exists, and then the plays work. Then the plays have something to say. They, in, in other words, they continually speak to people. Yes, absolutely. And what is important to note, I think, is that they speak so because they're ambiguous. Great works of art are ambiguous. There is basically an ambiguity at the heart of the piece. Could you, I, I, I'm not sure I follow you. Can you elaborate well, on that? Uh, <coughs> what is ambiguity is that nobody yet in my, <coughs> in my lifetime said Hamlet is about this, or King Lear is about <laughs> this, or the magic flute is about this. Nobody's, or, or for that matter, uh, the Madonna of the Rocks by Leonardo da Vinci is about this. That's the trick. Mm-hmm. Or you good. Take a, uh, I wouldn't really equate that play with, with the, the one I'm talking about, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, because uh, Godot are really fragments that are shored up against the ruin of these times, and the fragments consist of Lear and Hamlet of all these things, if you know what I mean. Uh, if you want uh, to elaborate further on the whole business of ambiguity, really is a great play and a great work of art. Art is almost like a litmus test that you dip into the times, and you always know where you are with what you come up with. Do you find that The that's... same way as I, as a director, dipping myself into the same play over a period of 30 years, find out who I am at that particular time of life, where I've been and where I am at the moment. Do you feel that a play written last year could be a classic? No, I don't think so, because it does have to subject it to the test of time, that it has to last. But how do you decide how much time? Well, we live in an age of instant fame and five-minute classicism. You're a classic for five minutes, and that's the end of that. And I, and I have met people, very bright people, who simply will not read a novel that was written after 1910, because they want to wait until it, So, I mean, we all live in a sea... Well, the truth of the matter is that we live in a sea of garbage, literally and metaphorically. And the essential thing is to keep sorting the garbage and to keep on surrounding yourself and to touch those things which have some kind of solidity. What do I mean by solidity? I mean value. And what do I mean by value? I equate it not only with aesthetics but also with ethics. Do do you think Shakespeare lived in a sea of garbage? Uh, Not to the extent as we do. We live in in a sea of garbage of information. 90% of it we don't need. We live in constant bombardment you know, about news that's happening all over the world, and I really do not need it. As a matter of fact, most of my time I spend to push it away, to isolate myself, to concentrate on my news, which are coming from within me. 
That's what really I'm interested in. And those news that are coming within me are a response to those selected happenings, sometimes and sometimes chance happenings, that affect me. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Shakespeare did in a much smaller world. But the paradox of Shakespeare is that being, living in a smaller world, he went deeper into himself because of the circumstances and because of his genius. Mm-hmm. So whether I say to myself, I live in a horizontal world where my attention is fragmented and spread all over the place and I feel that my whole being explodes and departs from me until I'm pulling pieces of myself back to, to know who I am and what I am, the opposite happens when you concentrate very narrowly on one thing. As a matter of fact, another definition of a classic or classics are people who are concerned about the same thing. Shakespeare wrote the same, about the same things from beginning to end. Chekhov wrote about the house, about his mother, about his sisters, about his brother and the friends he knew. Tiny things. But it's not the width that you cover, but the depth that you go down that matters in works of art. And that is a definition of a classic, basically. You know, the, the painter who keeps painting that one apple, or that one room, or that one subject. This, this incredible, deep submergence of the soul, the mind, the heart, the imagination, in a very, very, very narrowly defined uh, pool, which paradoxically ends up in the biggest ocean that ever was. It's the vertical <coughs> that matters, not the horizontal. The penetration of a subject, the exploration of one thing. That's what happens with Shakespeare. And if you have directed Shakespeare long enough, you know that this person is just another, per- another var- variation on that person. If you take Prospero, if you take Oberon, if you take <coughs> all these characters, or Puck and, and uh, uh, Ariel, or all the kings, which finally abstract themselves into a leer. You know what I mean? All the histories are dealing with the same situations, with the same confrontation, with the same people. However, in the histories, you're dealing with stories that are about the same, about real things. There was a Richard III. There was never a King Lear. But in King Lear, and especially in Prospero, you have an incredibly concentrated, economically created version of all those princes of all those kings with all those problems in a tiny, incredibly hard, incredibly sharp miracle of a play. We were just talking about... Am I talking about what you want to know? Yes, yes. Absolutely. Because we're just talking about, about the miracle of the Tempest, which ends up to be a play by Racine. The French always complain about Shakespeare because it's romantic, because, you know, it doesn't observe the unities. You know, it's all over the place. But at the end of his life, Shakespeare writes an, a French play. Unity of place, of time. It's incredible. With the exception of the prologue, in which he takes care of all of that. <laughs> you know, and then he focuses that and he does the play. And in the play, archetypally, you have a representation of every single histor- historical play that he ever wrote. The, uh, I, I was just reading this. That's the magic flute. Sorry. This, this afternoon, you, you bring up the French looking at Shakespeare. Uh, I digress already uh, for a second. I read this afternoon that one of the, the problems, apparently, that the French have with Shakespeare, which I didn't realize that they had one, was that there's something about 
1,500 to 1,500 words uh, in French, and, there were, and Shakespeare had 25,000 words at his mm-hmm. disposal. Do you, do you feel that that's true, that it doesn't, because Shakespeare could use nuances that the French don't relate well, to? No, they don't have as many words, literally. I mean, Shakespeare can, for red, you know, you find 20 words for soul, for uh, everything. You know, it's just an incredible vocabulary, which was uh, a matter of, of finding a language and uh, creating one, too, because the language developed tremendously uh, during Shakespeare's time. Well, the same, the same article talked about the fact that not only did he have 25,000 words about to choose from, but he was in the middle of the development of yes, the language. Yes, exactly, exactly. He needed a word, he made one up. Exactly. I mean, it's marvelous. Uh, you know, the, the, the incredible richness of that language which again helps you with ambiguity because the mere fact that there is no such thing as red, really. But there are 25 other words of it allows that word, that not the word, sorry, that sensation when the eye is confronted with that color. That's what we're talking about. To live within a connotation of infinity. So the words in the plays are rather like those Japanese paper flowers that you drop into water and they open up, except with these words, and the Shakespeare just keeps on growing, 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 because there's no end to the connotative power of those words, which is the essential thing about poetry. You know, and the juxtaposition of these words out of which the dynamics of the language comes about. Do you, uh, do you feel eyes that... deal with that? <laughs> Do you, sorry, do you feel that there should be a relationship between playwrights writing today and the classic? Well, uh, the fact of the matter is that life, consequently art and literature, uh, is a huge river. And whether you like it or not, you are part of and you are related to everything that went on before you. Barbaric societies and societies which are regressive try to eradicate the past and consequently have no future. You know, the point is that you cannot say that there is, that, that you are not in a tradition. Whether we like it or not, we are either working within it or reacting to, but the dialectic, you know, goes on. The great problem with modern American writing is that it doesn't come into contact with tradition. In a proper theatrical ecology, a young writer goes to sing King Lear one night, ten days later he's sitting and looking at Oedipus, and three weeks later he's looking at Sam Shepard, and he's writing his plays. You know, so you don't discover and rediscover the wheel over and over again. It is essential for any intelligent and productive theatrical ecology to display the works in a living form all the time. That's the meaning of a National Theatre of England or a Moscow Art or or the Hungarian National Theatre or any National Theatre of any country, that they have the dramatic literature of the particular country and the country of, of the civilized world, and sometimes the uncivilized world, whatever that means, 
uh, you know, constantly on display. So there is an ongoing interaction between the present and the past, out of which comes the future. If you don't have that, you live in a country of idiots. If that dynamic is not working, something is missing. It is only now that American theater, again, is beginning to pay attention to words and language. It has been a long time. It's only coming back now. The whole idea of, of politics being at the center of contemporary drama anywhere is only coming back into American theater and very, very weakly. Not the way it's happening in England, for example, at all. I mean, we are not dealing with the problems of this society, the politics of the society, the, the ethics of the society, as it happens. And I'm not talking about journalistic drama. I'm talking about artists who are sensitive to their environment in the full sense of the word, who are reflecting it, digesting it, and producing out of it. And there's something unhealthy about that for the art form, as obviously most of you who are living here must know that. Do, do you find that there's a, do you have any opinions on, is there a way to turn that sort of thing around? Because obviously art you, don't, you don't around. feel that any, that any playwrights writing today are or could become classics. No, I, I didn't say that. I just said that once again American drama is beginning to rediscover the importance of language. Mm -hmm. That's one of the sure. things I said. Secondly, that <coughs> there is not enough connection between what people are writing today and what has been written. And this is a very practical matter because it seems to me that you're dealing with a generation who looks at Tennessee Williams now as an old drunk who died, who was whatever, you know, that's about it. That's what you read in the papers and that was the sensational image of that man uh, by the time he died. The fact that he wrote Streetcar and Cat and all these places, which are without a doubt American classics, there's no doubt about it, in my mind at any rate, is not clear. And above all, generations of young people who will be writing naturalistic plays sometime or another have no opportunity to encounter these plays in performance. You see, any musician, any young composer can go to ten things a night and hear a Beethoven, a Mahler, a Mozart, a Penderecki, whatever. You can't do that in New York, in the center of the civilized world. You really cannot see those plays on display either as an audience or as an artist. And you have to have those contacts. So how do I know what the giants on whose shoulders I'm standing have done? If I'm aware of the fact that I'm standing on the shoulder of giants, without which you really better go home, because you're missing hell of a lot. The... Uh a couple of things. One is, <clears throat> uh, recently there have been stories in the paper about, I believe it's the novelist Doris Lessing, uh, submitting several of her books under yeah, a different yeah, name. Sure. Do you think Shakespeare's like produced it? It's like you saying, isn't it strange that I did funny thing happen to me in Broadway, which I want to elaborate on, because the idea that my image, such as it is, uh, is that of a classical director which means that I'm not supposed to like corned beef sandwiches, and certainly, and certainly I must not direct burlesque, right? Because it's beneath me. No, I... I well, anyhow, it's that, just a by the way. No, on a personal, on yeah, a personal well, basis, I went uh, with three weeks change of time from Oklahoma to Crime on Goat Island. 
And that's how it should be. Yes, absolutely. You know, the fact absolutely. is that this particular society and this kind of commercial theater world boxes you in because you sell only one thing. Tony Guthrie, who was a mentor of mine, was as happy doing a horse show as King Lear because it's all theater. And I personally love to do burlesque. And if somebody asked, would ask me to do a girl, uh, 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 you know, roller skating review or whatever, I would just run. I've done parades, swim shows, all kinds of things. That's encouraging. I, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's encouraging because I, 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 for whatever it's worth, I absolutely agree. You need to know how. Look, if you if don't you communicate I to tell an you audience, if you don't know about tits and teeth, you can't do King Lear. <laughs> I'm, I'm being absolutely serious. I'm absolutely serious. I mean, I think that it is very important that you preserve the essential vulgarity of theater in the best sense of the word. Because great works, performance works, gotta have vulgarity. I mean the, the life of, look what we're doing here. You know, it's a whorehouse that we work in, in more than one way. And the work itself, but it can be a good one, uh, as opposed to bad. There's never been a bad one. But, but, but the essential, but, Oh, I have <laughs> the point is, the point is that the essence of theater must not go too far away from circus or burlesque for many of these things, even if it's terribly, terribly serious and intellectual. The connection must be there. And if you want me to be terribly intellectual about it, then I have to say that the Dionysian element is an essential ingredient of theater, period, whatever kind of theater. And one of the main problems with the attitudes towards the classics in North America is that they relegate them in a totally Apollonian highbrow level and they make a terrible mistake because it ain't so. Isn't that because they, they, they speak to people? Back to Doris Lessing. <laughs> yes. do, do you think that, uh, that Shakespeare would be produced today if uh, a manuscript came in to, uh, to you? No, too many characters. Nobody <laughs> <does that. laughs> Too many characters. How do you do? Do you have any thoughts on the uh, on the Shakespearean uh, uh, the uh, <laughs> professor who recently uh, redid Shakespeare's work or is in the process of doing it? Yes, I, I translating it so that we understand it. I don't think you have to do that. You have to have actors who can, as all great actors can, hum or sing or talk gibberish and still convey meaning. And I think that you are denuding the language to a point where you lose the richness and you lose sound. And a word is not only meaning, but also sound and rhythm. And if you take those words away, which are so incredible, though no one understands them, nevertheless, it's marvelous to listen to them. Example, small children love to hear people talk and big words. They don't understand it, but the sound of it is marvelous. And the central thing is to fall in love with language. If you do fall in love, love with language, and you cannot do theater without it, I don't think. Certainly not the kind of theater that and I'm doing recently, or any kind of theater. And you are there really for sound as well as for meaning. But the sound must be one with the meaning, obviously. That's the trick. And I don't think... I mean, certain things, one changes a word, because a key word upon which the meaning of the whole paragraph rest and if people don't understand it we're in trouble so sometimes you have to fiddle <coughs> a bit mm -hmm. 
But I, I really do think that the King James Bible is really more interesting than the latest version. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I, was, I, was I don't mind if I don't understand every word. Mind you, I'm Hungarian. I mean, I still don't understand English too well. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not such a big deal. But the fact of the matter is that one listens, you know, and there's something fascinating, even about things that you don't understand. I, I was uh, two years ago with a tour through society in the mm-hmm. Soviet Union and was in the theater every night. Mm-hmm. Um, had several very good experiences and several very boring experiences. Um, probably more good experiences than I would have here, but certainly as many boring experiences mm-hmm. as I would have. But the point is, is that the good experiences, the language was no barrier at all. He absolutely knew what was being done on stage. The first time I did the Cherry Orchard, I got the cast together and they read the play and then I had a gentleman called George Ignatieff who came to Russia, who came to Canada when he was around 10 or something in 1918 or sometime just after the revolution. And I had him sit in the middle of the stage and he read the whole first act of the Cherry Orchard in Russian to a cast. Every single actor laughed on cue. No, <laughs> they got every single thing. And this guy was not an actor. Did that, how did you fare when the actor said, did he laugh in all the actors? I don't remember that because he, never, <laughs> because he never came as an audience of one, you see. What about Doris Lessing? Well, no, I was just wondering. <laughs> no, no, I just meant in, in terms, if you didn't know, you answered the question. No, if you I, didn't know it was Shakespeare, would you produce the play? As, as people turned down Doris Lessing's work, not realizing it was Doris Lessing. Would you do, do you think you would feel the beauty of the plays, the classic nature of the Well, I, I mean... Other than I've not been, having enough actors to do them. Okay, well, I've been working on Pericles, for example. And the first two acts were not written by Shakespeare, and you bloody well know when he starts writing. It's like, it's like a terrible orchestra playing, you know, and then the violin, the soloist comes in, and you bloody well know who goes out to play. You know, I mean, the first time he, time he opens his mouth, you know who's speaking. You can't mistake it. I mean, the, the, the language is so incredibly, intoxicatingly beautiful that you've got to be deaf, dumb, and blind if you don't recognize it, you know. Or some of us, it takes I've a been while reading, I've been reading some very, very good books lately. One of them is Eudora Welty's book on, on uh, writing. I mean, that woman writes English like Shakespeare. I mean, I tell you, it's an incredible clarity. With She talks about the first time she understood what words are. And she talks about going out to the porch at night and look at the moon and taking the word moon into her mouth with a spoon and tasting it. Moon. And looking at it. Well, there is somebody who writes brilliantly and, and marvelously. I just read a book by Molly Keane an Irish, Anglo-Irish lady who's 72 years old and wrote this incredible book where the language is an ongoing pleasure. I'm giving you my reading list of the last months, but I read a lot. And then there's J.L. Carr who wrote a book called Months in the Country. And you keep reading these people and it is incredibly pleasurable to come in contact with minds which are able to express themselves so fully that 
you, you, you marvel, not at their minds, you know, but the mind of man. Which that a mind, still can, that a mind can that a mind can do this, yeah. not in 1508, but 18, 1984. And there's something miraculous to me about this constant reaffirmation of man's imagination, heart, and, and, and soul, and our ability to translate these experiences through hieroglyphs, you know, to which we have the code. It's, it's something mystical, mysterious, and religious, without a doubt, to be confronted with these writings, whether it's his or these people I've been reading, or M.F.K. Fisher, for example. I've been reading an awful lot of novels, and, and mainly by women writers. Just read Elizabeth Bowen and all these things, and it's gorgeous. A lot of times they seem to have a different sensibility than what we're used to. Well, yes. I mean, and then I look at the television when I get into the hotel room, and I really feel that I'm in Bedlam. I really feel that that, that great mind, which is our mind, whose product, whose creations we have been living with and experiencing and appreciating with has been trivialized to that I wanted to say to a baboon but I'm changing my ideas about baboons because of reading all about all these experiments <laughs> and so on I don't know what it's horrendous what's going on horrendous what's going on I go back to what I started with we live in a sea of garbage and a sea of trivialization of the most marvelous and greatest creations that man is capable language that has been totally reduced to garbage, as you read it, <coughs> images, what have you. You, you mentioned uh, a few moments ago, you were talking about the vulgarity of the classics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, <coughs> I, I, to, to quote a sentence from the biographical information on you that I saw, that it says that you were a great believer in theater for the people and is a constant critic of the elitist entertainment concept of theater in Canada. Uh, what, can you explain a little bit what you consider the elitist entertainment concept? I rather not use the word elitist. I really uh, would like to to make a comment about the fact that theater and music and and the performing arts are moving farther and farther away from uh, large numbers of people because they can't afford it. It's a matter of economics and a matter, a matter of society. You know, I mean, we have these incredible values, artifacts, living and, and, and inanimate, and we are moving them further, uh, further away from the center of the society because most people can't afford to see these things or participate in these events. And what happens then is that the art form dies. It has to. You know, it was, it's, it's very interesting that, that, I mean, I go through here, Broadway, you know, and tickets are costing $40 and $45 to things I wouldn't want to see anyhow. And things that I would like to see you can't find. Because those things cannot even be produced. So something is just disappearing. And once again, you're bringing up generations of people in a culture where you simply do not introduce to them what the past of that culture has produced to support them in the present. 
and to encourage them to go on living in the future. We are hiding away treasures from the children. That's what we're really doing. We are robbing them of things that we have. But that's a matter for the whole society. And art is not never changes society, I don't think. It's the other way around. Art reflects. That's really what that, it is. So the art, in your, in your opinion, does not lead society? No. No. Certainly not theater. Theater is the last one to use a new idea because it's very dangerous. You know, the first people are always who write. And then music. Mm-hmm. Because nobody knows what they're talking about. The words are not really there. And theater is the last one and you, gotta, you, you speak out. And you get put in jail, usually, in certain countries. Or here you're just neglected. It's the same thing, really. Here, in this society, you never can get the thing done. Because it's not economically possible. In other countries, you can't get it done because there's censorship in this. So you, you feel that the theater has become an elitist art form? Very much so. Commercial theater, certainly. Well, I was talking to Arthur Miller, you know, some time ago, and Arthur said that he couldn't see himself writing for Broadway anymore because his audience disappeared. You know, he doesn't have the kind of homogeneous or more or less homogeneous audience that he had in the 50s. And certainly not in the 30s where people could go to the theater the way they went to the movie, because it was not that much more expensive. Or in England, I mean, you go into the National Theater, you can, you can see a, you know, a contemporary play, a classic, or whatever. People can afford it. It's not a big deal. But here, people can't afford it anymore. And those people who can afford it, you know, see what they want to see, I guess, or what they are offered. I mean, there's very little serious theater going on here. Certainly New York. I mean, it's, it's, it's just deplorable, but this is the way things are going. Well, I have a very serious show running at the moment that the top ticket price is $6. So there are people attempting. Whether they're successful yeah. or not, the attempts yeah. are being made. Well, that's a good thing. The, the, do you feel that... that Organizations should, forgetting for a second the, the financial considerations, that organizations should try to combat this feeling by bringing more to the people? Well, I, I'm, I run a theater which, which uh, receives a very small subsidy, if the truth be told. Very small subsidy. Uh, and the Ministry of Culture in Ontario, which is the state province, have given us $480,000 for this last year. I said, look, we know already that in certain months, certain days are not too good. We know that we can, we'll only have 50% houses, let's say. We'll give you the other 50% and you give the tickets away in areas in Toronto where there's a huge population of newcomers so that those people have an idea that there is a theater you know, where this thing goes on. So we have given away, I don't know, five, six, seven thousand tickets. And people came, you know, who would have never come to the theater before. And they would not have known that a hundred miles from where they live, there exists such a thing as Stratford, where such and such a things are done. This is what you mean, I suppose. Yes. And we do 
played to 50,000 school children in the spring and, and fall season who come for a reasonable amount of money. And we have all kinds of discount programs and senior citizens and all the rest of it. But, you know, you have to fight with the board to make that happen because they think you're throwing tickets away. And as far as I'm concerned, a theater such as I run now is exactly like a public library from where I sit, you know. It is our business to keep doing these plays in order to show, to reinforce, and to enlighten a whole society about certain values which are central to the existence to that society. These are great humanistic words, not words, works, which at a time such as these have tremendous importance, spiritual and political importance, and they got to be on display. Lovely idea. You know, I would put a classical repertoire theater in the drawer of every hotel room in America. Really, <laughs> 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 the same thing. What's the difference? You do you th- do you think there's any? Uh, you talk about turning on the television and mm-hmm. getting to your hotel room and seeing the trash. I think most of us would agree with that, or at least a great portion of what's on. Do you think there's a there? You have a great deal of experience with television and drama and television. And, uh, do you think that, that television as a medium can be used to go back in time, to begin to come back to the people? But it doesn't have to go back to the people because it is in front of the people all the time. But I mean to bring the classics to the people. I don't mean... I, I, I really am not in favor of putting all of Shakespeare on television. No. I, I, look, and not even with Shakespeare. I'm basically interested in certain values that the society expresses in many, many ways through theater, through music, through politics, through education, all kinds of ways. I'm mainly concerned about values. This is why I'm an artist. You know, the two things are absolutely indivisible in my mind. I'm not in the theater because I like to put on shows only. I'm in the theater because I believe that what those plays say, with my help and cooperation, have a basic function in the society in which I live, as much of a function as breathing or eating or whatever. Because without ideas and without values, naturally my kind of values, no civilized society survives. It is a matter of survival. Spiritual, political, social survival. Things don't go on forever. Man dies, society dies, and values dies when society dies. New things come along. But I'm very committed to the values and whatever contains those values of this particular society. I mean, just language. Well, I... I, I, And it's because I get pleasure out of it. You know, it's... Certainly, certainly. But I don't you think... I mean, the the economic realities of working in the theater, it seems to me, Mm -hmm. are such that those of us in this room who attempt to work in the theater must somewhere deep down have a belief that what we are doing is important to the souls of human beings. Right. Because you can't make a living at it. Right. So something else must be driving us. Well, what drives you is what we're talking about, that we believe in it. On the other hand, we are beginning to recognize, I think slowly or perhaps rapidly, that the society in which we live doesn't think this whole activity important enough. 
which doesn't stop you from doing what you're doing, or I, or you, or anybody. But it's very difficult, you know, to keep on providing something that is being rejected. And I'm not playing sensitive artist outsider, alienated, this, that. I'm talking about very practically. I happen to believe that we have a function here. I mean, our lives have some kind of meaning. And our lives have to do with our work, what you give, what you contribute. And this is where your meaning for living comes. And the society that rejects this is not in good shape. It's in very bad shape because it rejects some of the finest and the most dedicated and the most meaningful activities as they exist in human beings. I'm not telling you anything new. And there is something fundamentally wrong with a society that keeps disregarding, dismissing, and impeding certain things, which is what's going on. If the classics, in general, in a, in a wide term of the classics, mm-hmm. can are, are classics in part because they continually stand the test of time and touching our souls as human beings, mm-hmm. does it not then make sense to begin to try to bring the classics to the people through a medium that is important with the people, as in television. Yes, but, but, but you have to find a way to do that. I have been obviously working with this idea for quite a while. I mean, to do a Shakespeare f- sort of from the stage, right there with cameras. I've done it now for a couple of years. It doesn't really work. Uh, to, to do it as a film, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, I think the most successful opera that I've ever seen on screen or on television is the Magic Food Berman piece. It just is. And if you can do Shakespeare like that, you know, by all means, do it. But it's not from the stage, really. It's, it's a full production. And I think that it's important that these things should be in front of people. So people know that somewhere there is a person who is Shakespeare and this is what he does. I always... It's always, Inspector General, please, when you go back to Moscow, but there is no no accessibility. I mean, don't you think it is absolutely insane that in the city of New York, with 15 million people, with all these theaters around, there is such a big deal that they're doing death of a salesman? What's so big about it? It should be done every year, every second year. It should be there. Just the same as you can go into the Metropolitan Opera and take a look at whatever your favorite thing is. It should be there. It's the same thing. Suddenly they say, it's a revival of. What kind of BS is that? <laughs> when the Philharmonic does Beethoven Ninth over at Philharmonic, they say it's a revival of Beethoven Ninth. <laughs> what, what are they talking about? You know, it's just, just very, it's a bad situation. Theater somehow got all mixed up with something else. And the fact that the Vivian Bowman's quote has been closed for eight years or something, they can't put, they can't put together a rapper company. You know Helm? You know there's a village in Helm where the fools live? Right. No, it's like this. I mean, they, they can't figure it out. Why? How to do it, you know? 
I must tell you, I, it's like some, some soap opera actor who, who used to work with me, but I don't know how they would, took me to the polo lounge or something, and it was Mother's Day. <laughs> and, and there were all these people with mothers and so on talking. And this guy was broadcasting his career. It was a, I couldn't figure out why he was talking so, so loud about how he's going to be flown in and tested for this. It was not me. He just wanted to tell the world, I suppose, that he was hot and so on. And I was sitting and listening to him and getting terribly bored because he was speaking too loud and who was interested? I wasn't. I wanted to talk to him about how he is and whatnot, but that wasn't. And behind him sat a family with an unfortunate sort of member of the family who was paraplegic or whatnot. And he was trying to put some melon into his mouth and he kept putting it in his ear. And I felt somehow appropriate the situation like that. I didn't want to have the melon in my ear. I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to. He wouldn't. He wasn't doing that, but it was like that. <laughs> Why did I tell you this story? <laughs> Being in the polo lounge on Mother's Day is melon enough to me. <laughs> yeah, it was really very, very weird. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's really incredible that 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 this city doesn't have a major repertory company. I mean, they have the Met, they have ballet companies, they have New York City Opera, they have museums and so on, but if you decide next week you want to go and see Three Sisters, you are in trouble. Or you see it somewhere, you know, where a couple of marvelous souls are going to do checkout, by God, in a six-by-six room, and, and they're not equipped to do it. No reflection on them, but the resources and the whole situation requires something else. Like you can't do Aida in that corner. <laughs> You'd have the trouble to get even one elephant in there. <laughs> so the point is, you know, that we are really, <clears throat> we are really uh, robbing ourselves from incredible works which are very nourishing and very important because we don't display them, because we, we don't make sure that they are on, on display. Let me, let me try to, to, at least for me, hopefully for the people in the audience, swing from the sublime a little bit and start looking at specifics of things. Uh, I noticed that you did the Cherry Orchard in 1965. I assume that was the first time you did mm-hmm. the Cherry Orchard. Uh, and that you're about to do it again next season. And I assume you were directing it. Yeah. How do you think you've changed and your production will change? I won't know it until I do it. I'm not being flippant. No, no. I just don't know. Basically, there are certain plays I keep doing over and over again. Over and over again. I've, I've done four Midsummer Night Dreams since 1961 or two. And they're all different. They're different because of the actors and designer and so on. And they're different because I'm different and because I've changed. But I don't know how I change until I sit down and take a look at it and say, oh, that's what it is, that's how it is. But certain things kind of go through all the production that I do. I'm very reluctant to do this cherry orchard, to tell you the truth, because the first time around I had marvelous people and it was lovely. And I really feel that I, I did it, you know. I, I really, I really, I'm very proud of that production. It was awfully good. And the three sisters, which I did in, only five years ago, I guess, or six years ago, and I really don't want to do that again. 
because I had a marvelous bunch of people in it. And one had done it, you know. But with the Sherry Orchard, they keep telling me I should do it, and I had lunch with an actress today, and I said, well, she wants to do it, and then I said, she says that uh, she's not too good at Chekhov, maybe, and twice she's done it, she's done it on BBC once, and she's done it somewhere else, and she doesn't know. And that kind of makes it interesting, because I'm sure she is good at it, you know. And I don't know what I do with the play now. All I know, it has to be absolutely super realistic. There's got to be more leaves there than you've ever seen leaves and furniture and all the rest of it. I'm sick and tired of all these checkups where, you know, it happens in nothing and a tablecloth is hanging from there and that's supposed to be something. <laughs> and, it's, and it's such a terrible, stupid misunderstanding of what the guy is writing about. He's writing about houses from which people are kicked out. So how can you be kicked out from a hanging tablecloth? You know, I mean, it makes no sense. It really makes and no sense. Makes, you know, what I mean, you're saying makes the sense. The physical, the world in which these people live is crucial. It's crucial. It's really crucial because it's about that world. People being exiled from places. Mm-hmm. Being displaced, being kicked out, thrown out. You can't do that unless there is some place. I mean, if you take a look at the Three Sisters, I mean, it's absolutely marvelous. In the first act, everybody's using the whole house. In the second act, they're all in the small room upstairs. In the third act, they're out in the yard. I mean, the guy did not write this out of a whim. You know, he wanted to show how these people are gradually pushed out. I mean, it's a metaphor which is crucial to the play. And if you do not play it, if you do not represent it visually, you're not doing that play, you're doing something else. Shakespeare, you can do with nothing. It really doesn't matter. But not with Chekhov. Anyhow, I'm just going back to the point, so... I'll remember that the first time I get a chance to do the chair. Well, any of those plays. It's crucial. It's always an estate that is about to go under, or a house from which people are displaced or removed. The plays are basically about loss and change, which are the most difficult things for us human beings to deal with. Because we are born, the moment we're born, We are born with incredible loss, which will will never survive. The expulsion from the womb, after which came all the myths of the Garden of Eden and being kicked out. That's how life starts, being kicked out. And and our whole lives goes from one change and one loss to another until we lose it. And that's what Chekhov is writing about. Maybe that first moment is leading on your own volition. You're not. I mean, you're hanging on for dear life. Who wants to get out? <laughs> Anybody with any brains. It's much cooler to be outside. Than <laughs> outside. Well, no, I am a womb person. I mean, I, really, <laughs> I think I, I will be quite happy to float around for the rest of I mean, I don't know. But, but, <laughs> but I do know because, you know. Do you, how do you feel that the, uh, when you do a show, do you feel you're influenced by a political situation? of the time that you're living in? I'm influenced by every single thing that ever happened to me when I do anything. But everything. I mean, I mean by everything. I bring, I bring every single second of that day into the rehearsal hall that day. I can't shut up about, about what happened to me on the way to the theater. Because my function is to absolutely empty myself, you know, as if you're emptying a basket of goodies in front of the actors. 
I mean, I'm very clever about what I put on the table, I think. Because even when something seems inconsequential, it does somehow make a point. It's still connected, you know. And if I want them to give me all, I better give all that I have in aid of doing something else. But obviously one of the reasons why I love doing uh, Shakespeare or, or classical plays is because, because they, they work on, on every level. And the political level for me is very important. I am very politically oriented. By that I mean that I care where my society is going or not going. And that has to do with poverty. Hmm. Uh, me, <clears throat> well, I'd love to even first. No. The, the, uh, the aspects of the company, we touched a little, you touched a little on, on uh, and I've read it, uh, I'm paraphrasing you, but the idea that every somebody comes back every four months and tries to do a new play, that there should be some ongoing company form so that the company grows together. Well, I'm working in a theater which had continuity for 32 years. 32 years. There's no very few places on this continent where people have been working in the same place. Not always the same people, but people keep coming back to the theater to act. New people come into it. Some old people are there. Like two of the oldest members of our company now, uh, one of them, Max Helpman, who is retiring because he's just not able to, to do the work anymore. Another person is 78 years old now, and he still works. He walks with a cane, but he gets on that stage every night and does something. You know? And that's very important. There should be... Because theater is created by community, it's a collective art and best created by communities of people who share an idea. And, you know, that company has a responsibility to bring up its children. So we have a young company into which we bring young actors to come and work. And I must say, it is, it is very good to work with people over a period of three, four years. You know them, you know what they can do. There are relationships that are already developed and and the work is much, much easier. It has also disadvantages, but so does everything else. But if I would have my brothers, I would rather work with a company. As long as I can add people to it and I can take some people out every now and then. But there's a sense of a unit there. I worked with the Habima in Israel, which is also a, a company. And, uh, and on the first day of rehearsal, I was doing the Seagull. The stage manager introduced me to all the actors, and there was a, a very small, very old man sitting in, a, in an armchair. And, I, and, and the stage manager, after having said, and Mr. So-and-so plays so-and-so, and Miss So-and-so plays so-and-so, and Mr. So-and-so plays the dog. And I said, I don't remember a dog in the seagull. He says, yeah, there was a dog in the seagull. What dog? The dog that barks from across the lake. And I said, I don't need an actor to do that. He says, whether you need it or not, he plays the dog in this company. Every time he needs a dog, they, they bring him from the old folks' home, he barks twice, and he goes home. And that's why it is. And I said, that's fine. <laughs> and it's very interesting, because the man was a marvelous actor who couldn't remember lines anymore, lines anymore, anything else. 
But when he was 19 years old in Moscow, he played the dog in the Bluebird. And he still remembered how to bark. So that's how they used him. And I thought that was marvelous. You know, that's what a life is. You keep doing what you can do, and when you can do very little, well, you do very little. But you're using human beings, valuable human beings, in a humane way and in a productive way. You return, but it seems to me that there's a cycle, there's a, there's a circular cycle, that from his youth he returns with his age. And there's, yeah. to me, there's a beauty in that. Yeah, yeah. And he was, he was a lovely... He looked like the man in, in the film of You Can't Take It With You, the guy who was in the basement who works on the fireworks. <laughs> Remember that guy? Whatever his name is. That's how he looked, except he had a lot of white hair. How did you as a director deal with the fact that he wanted to be a shepherd and he wished it to be a cow? What do you feel the, the responsibility uh, you as artistic director has to your company? Well, my responsibility is to use them well. That is, those people who are awfully good and have versatility is to give them things that perhaps they wouldn't do otherwise and they wouldn't think of doing otherwise. And the young ones, it is my responsibility to give them bigger and bigger tasks so they are properly tested and challenged. It's also my responsibility to tell somebody, you must leave now because you've got everything that you can get out of this situation. You are better off not to go away and do something else. And I have a responsibility to, to feed them in terms of extra things as much as possible. I mean, we show films, we, we have a lot of lectures, we, we talk a lot. But, you know, there are a hundred people who are working there, actors, anywhere from six to eight months, an awful lot of people. It's a huge theater with 900 permanent people, you know, people working there, including the gardeners and everybody. It's a big place. And it's very difficult to run a place like that. And I don't think one person should run it. I really think that the way the RSC is run is a much better model than, than Stratford. But it's not possible at the moment. One, one doubling back to one final thing before we open up to questions. Um, again, in, in preparing myself be able to sit next to you. You're doing okay. You're sitting right there. I came across a quote from another roundtable that mm-hmm. the Society sponsored by a quote from Mark Lemos, Ron mm-hmm. that he says that unless a director has a personal, I paraphrase, passion to a text, believes that the text should be staged precisely now, there is no point in doing Shakespeare. Would you agree with that? That it should be uh, uh, staged precisely now. That it must be done now. The passion for it. So what he can convey to an audience. Well, to some extent I agree with him. I mean that whoever is directing it must have a passion for the play. But not necessarily because it must be done now. Because, you know, on November the 4th there's going to be an election here, therefore we must do Julius Caesar. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, that's mm-hmm. a reductive absurdum of, of that yeah. argument. I don't really believe it. I mean, the fact of the matter is that that there are certain plays that I am passionately interested in and I could do it passionately anytime somebody asks me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I don't think that you... Re- I mean, that all brings us to relevance, that terrible world, word, you know. It's no good unless it's relevant, you know. 
Well, that means that unless something is going on now, which this piece of thing, art, work of art, could illuminate. And my point is that certain works of art can illuminate any time anybody who comes and sees it, provided the passion with which it's done gives them the necessary relevance. That's what matters. A work of art or a classic includes that word relevant at all times. Yes, the point is, again, my problem with relevant is that it acquired a connotation that is so immediate and so denotative, you know, that I don't like to use it. The point is that there are certain things I, I can always go and see and get something out of. I mean, wandering into the Museum of Modern Art and looking at some of those Van Goghs or at the National Gallery in London, I'm talking about some favorites of mine, looking at the Madonna of the Rocks or looking at the Blake uh, engravings at the Tate, they're always relevant to me. I have a hunger to see those things again, as I have hunger for stuffed cabbage. I can always eat a good plate of stuffed cabbage, you know, when I'm hungry. And the two things are very, I mean, very related. They're the same thing. We're talking about nourishment. That's all we're talking about. Art is not so, you know. God save us from putting it out there. Especially with the classics. That's a problem in North America, I think. We're looked at somehow very precious. And they are far from it. Far from it. We got a letter from somebody objecting to the bodiness of Romeo and Juliet. Two infinite people are touching their pricks and whatever this and this. And how dare you to do this to Shakespeare? Well, obviously the guy had never read the text. It's a very dirty body script, you know. That's all there is to it. Nobody added anything. But the idea of these classics is, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday school, puritanical stuff. They don't want to see the vulgarity, the vaudeville, the earthiness, the ground from which these great things emerged, and they carry the dirt with them, as it ought to be. You can take great joy from King Lear to Cherry Orchard, a funny thing happened on the way to perform. Absolutely. And an awful lot of other things. You know, as long as you keep doing, as long as you have an opportunity to do these things. And I have been extraordinarily lucky in my career because I always could do these great things under very, very good circumstances. Always. And I have very seldom done things because I had to do it, either because of financial considerations or because somebody told me it's good for your career not to do this and this and this, therefore you should. And I never have to do that. So in my own self, I'm very pleased, you know, with what I have done, with what I have, which is a gift, not money. And I've used it in this sense fairly well. And it all, the work always nourished me. I always thought it was a privilege to go in at 10 o'clock in the morning and work on Hamlet or Lear or the Cherry Orchard or Mother Courage or, or Funny Thing because I was always in contact with great works of man. And that's a privilege and an ongoing pleasure. What else do you want? I mean, that's really what a life should be, where you can give as much as you can give 
and be in contact with things that constantly feed you to give more. And then see people who are also fed by what you do. Very simple. Well, I am, I am fed and, and enriched, I think, sitting here listening to you, and I think I need to uh, let our audience feed a little bit more. Uh, does anyone have any questions? We regret that this question was inaudible on the original master tapes. We're going to go directly to the answer. Well, I still believe, and I always believe, but now more than ever, that one's early years, you know, are most important. And what you come in contact with during those years, both in terms of personal contacts and family and culture and society, etc., are really determining factors in, in what you're going to do most of your life. And I was very lucky to to have an absolutely marvelous mother. As a matter of fact, I ended up with two mothers in this life, which is very, very seldom in anyone's life. But, but my original mother and my, my um, adoptive mother, who's still alive at the age of 94, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, in Canada. And without a doubt, without a doubt, my mother had a tremendous influence on my life, along with my grandfather. Uh, my mother was a person who spoke four languages and played the piano and played with me all the time. I mean, making puppet theaters with me and, and uh, doing whatever we did, you know, at home. And my grandfather, who was a marvelous, very well-read man, uh, with whom I shared a bedroom, when my little brother was born, I was exiled from Eden into what I thought to be uh, a very cold place, but it turned out to be, again, a marvelous place because my grandfather told me a story every night before I fell asleep. Having shared a room with him, you know, he told me a story, and he was a marvelous storyteller. So I had that. And those are very early influences. And I had a marvelous family. Uh, I, had, I had an aunt who was... Um, uh, child psychologist analyst uh, who uh, taught very, very bright children and retarded children in the same classroom as an experiment that went on, went on for approximately 10 years. And she was a brilliant, very interesting woman who had a great influence in my life. Um, and another aunt of mine was a costume designer and she was very interesting. I had a very crazy grandmother who was a very eccentric woman whom I adored and who adored me, and she was a great influence in my life. And I lived in a city where everybody was born with two acts of a play already in their heads, and they spent the rest of their lives writing the first act, as you very well know. Hungary is very rich, a very interesting place, and Central Europe, uh, the more I think about it, and the more I read about it, I don't know whether any of you read Milan Kundera's article in the New York Review of Books a month ago about the death of Central Europe. Uh, and I, I'm beginning to realize what an incredibly rich soil environment I come from. And those things that I saw as a child, uh, great plays, you know, everything from, from uh, La Dame au Camille, you know, to St. Joan, to all of Shakespeare, and Schiller, and Goethe, you know, to which I went when I was 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, regularly, every Saturday morning, you know. I used to go and sit. Plus... The, the, the kind of uh, opposite end of it, which was an amusement park with puppets and marionettes. 
and the theater where Lilliputians performed plays, you know, tiny people. I mean, it was freaky, but I never forget it. Uh, you know, all these things came together, plus the fact that I was Jewish and I lived in a Catholic country. So the theatricality of Catholic, Catholicism, you know, was a constant attraction. And I was excluded from it, but very attractive, nevertheless. Uh, I can go on forever, but really, that environment, those people, that incredibly fertile soil uh, from which I come uh, influenced more than anything else that I can think of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you see, the point is that the concomitant of that extraordinary childhood that I had in terms of very bright people was an ongoing awareness of death, destruction, and danger. Because I lived in a country where anti-Semitism was an everyday thing, which then resulted in the Holocaust which resulted in the loss of every single person of that family that I had, I was surrounded with. So I never really had only one thing and not be aware of the other thing. The two things were always present. But the fact that I had such a loving, warm environment and, and such a rich environment made it bearable, naturally. And I dare say, made it bearable ever since. You know, Freud, if you were loved by your mother, you'll be all right all your life. <laughs> and as I say, the fact is that I was. And then when I came to this country, I, I, I found an adopted family, again, curiously enough, with two extraordinary women, just extraordinary women. One is 94 now, the other is 74, mother and daughter, who are just remarkable. And somehow you get through everything if you know what magic stones to touch. You've got to learn what are the stones to touch, you know? And for me, people are amulets. I know that there is somebody who is good and religious and all that. So you don't lose your faith in, in man, in humanity, and consequently in yourself. All you have to experience in life is goodness only once. All you have to know that there is. That's all. If you, if you happen to experience it twice, you're lucky. If you experience it more, I mean, God. Am I making sense to you? That Just one thing. Yeah. It's a nature of life, you know, that you live in the midst of decay because indeed we are decaying too and that decay is a concomitant of life. And the essential thing is once again that you should know that your life has some meaning and some sense. And those of us who work in the arts experience this every day. You know that you're doing something that makes sense. 
You are literally making sense out of chaos. That's what art is, a process of ordering chaos into recognizable, comprehensible models of order. Every work of art has its own universe, its own rules. It's a process of ordering that keeps you sane. And that gives you, or ought to give you, meaning. So that you can keep on existing. But chaos is a given. Man's desire to order, I believe, is also a given. And this ongoing dialectic, this process, is, is what we are about, both as individuals and as a species. When we start to destroy ourselves and imitate chaos, and destruction, rather than creating order, then we are very sick. When we destroy ourselves willingly, when we destroy the whole world consciously, willingly, we are still men, but we are insane. <clears throat> Do you experience any uh, futility? when in the act of making sense and perhaps doing with some modicum of sensibility, um, your audience wants to have, say, wonderful, great, or achieve awful. In other words, they don't deal with the very values that are important to you, but they deal with the product as you know, something uh, uh, competently uh, produced or uh, something disturbed them. I have two things to, to, to say about this. Most immediately, I was just reading an interview by an old Hungarian actress who was celebrating her 71st, 75th birthday, and she was talking about her life. And she talked about the fact that she played in provincial companies, <coughs> you know, when she was 20 years old, 20, where there were only 10 people in the audience. And they always used to say, during those performances and after, we played for ourselves and to God. That's one. Secondly, over all the years that I've worked in the theater, now it's over 30 years, I've learned that there is one person out of 2,000 who understands what I'm about. I'm lucky, and I'm grateful. And there was always one person. And more and more I recognize, because they come back 20 years later and say, do you remember that? what you did. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But there's always that one person who has the sensitivity and the perception. When I was doing The Tempest in uh, Los Angeles at the Mark Taper, I kept talking about the magic food all the time. And the greatest compliment that I got from anybody is when an interviewer who interviewed me talked and talked about the production at the end of it, he said, you know, I don't want to say this, but I will tell you. I kept thinking that I'm seeing the magic flute. And I said, that's it. That's all one needs. You know, it's really the same as with individuals. Who knows you? Really, who knows you the way you are? Only God. Who can really know what you do out of yourself except that rare, rare person? To expect that everybody knows what you are doing, what your intentions are, you know, would be demeaning to you. 
because it would be too obvious, too simple, too, 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 too. This complexity, this ambiguity that I'm talking about, which is at the very heart of great works of art, is the complexity and the ambiguity of the self, of a single individual. It's similar, isn't it? And just the same as we cannot be totally understood by anybody, even those who love us tremendously and live with us for all our lives. So a work of art that we produce, hopefully I say, cannot be totally understood by any one person. And that's how it should be. I would say that we're enriched by the search. Yes. It's the process. If I'm that one person, we still, one of the, what you get, what I get, is, is yourself enriched in the search for that communication. I mean, there's that communication for, for that meeting. Yeah, but you know, it's a search, but they're there. You just know they're there. There's a Hasidic story which says that the whole world rests on 36 just men. They don't know they are just men themselves. Nobody else knows that they are just men, but there are 36 of these people. And I believe the same about audiences. There are 36 people, and one of them is always at one of my performances. That's really what it's about. For them? Did I hear you read off the interpretation of the Gibbet twice? So did you give an adaptation of it? I did a translation and an adaptation of the Dibbuk, which I did first at the Manitoba Theatre Centre, then the production went to Toronto, then it went to Montreal. Then it went, then I did it again very soon afterwards at the Mark Taper Forum, then the Washington Arena did it and some other theatres. It was my own version of the play. It needs a lot of work, because as it stands. You know, there are some great plays who, which, which are great plays, and then you can't really do them, because they turn out to be not so great. So you really have to struggle with the material. But, but it has marvelous things in it. And, and I had an absolutely fantastic time doing it. Because again, I was passionately interested in exploring certain things within myself, and. It really had to do with, with my own sense about what is religious and <coughs> what religion is. And I was concerned about certain spiritual matters, and I thought that the best way for me to explore it is through doing something like that. That was right. Anyone else? What kind of work What kind of surprises? Well, my function really, as a director of a new play, is to help the director, uh, help the, the writer, I mean, to clarify what he really means, not what's there, just, but what you really mean, what is it that you are talking about, and are you saying it, presenting it the best possible way. That's my function. And the surprise is, when the writer says, that's what I meant, not this. Or you are right, this is not the way to say what I meant. 
but it's this way. Very, very good writers, you don't know that. I mean, it's just, they just... <laughs> you know, I always wondered how Shaw just wrote those plays. He didn't workshop it and he didn't have a direction. <laughs> he did it, you know. And, you know, so there are people who just write and there it is. Noel Card wrote Private Lives in, what, one week or something? What, how many? Four days, sorry, four days. The days were longer than that. Days were longer, that's September song. Mr. Hirsch, on behalf of the society. Okay, maybe. thank you. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.